That's why to give a quick I announcement. Our friends at Abba Love, which is uh, right, uh, well, it's not anywhere, actually. It's another church that meets on our property. They're having a fair here today with food trucks and all that stuff. That's not the important part. The important part is that I'm going to be in a dunk tank and that if anybody, any one of you have any beef with me or anything like that, you get your chance. And I'm not sure, you guys back there, you have to pay up for it. And um, I, I think I'll be in a dunk tank between 3 or 4 p.m. or something like that. Hopefully the hottest part of the day. So anyways, I just wanted to let you guys know that. There's going to be food trucks out in our property and all that stuff. And that's to support Abba Love Ministries. They're good friends of ours. And uh, they've been a partner in ministry with us for quite some time. So we're starting a new series today. We're starting a series just called Average Joes. And we're looking at what does the average person believe and what does the average person need to know if they ask the question, I don't get it. You might come to church and say, this is just strange. I don't get what these people do. I don't get why they carve out some time to gather every single week. Wouldn't they rather be at Starbucks sipping on some coffee? But yes, I I love coffee, but gathering with people is actually super important. Why do Christians forgive each other? Why do Christians do this or that? I mean, it all goes back to this central question of what do we believe? And so today, starting out this series, I'm kicking this series off. We're just going to start off with what is it that we believe? Just a clear presentation, um, just exactly point for point, what it says in the Gospels. We're going to flip through some scriptures pretty quick. Um, We have them up on the screens, and then if you have a tablet or a phone, it's on the Bible app, um, and you go to live, and you, uh, you search Covina, and that should pop on up right there as well. So it's either your Bible, the screen, your tablet, or you just go by memory. Um, if you're like me, and you've memorized the entire Bible. I memorized it all in Spanish, but I don't speak Spanish. So it does me no good. That's not true. By the way, something very exciting happened this morning. I was in my office studying as I normally do on a Sunday morning, and my phone rang. And it turns out, um, because of some of the doping scandals, London's called me to ask me to be part of the weightlifting team. Um, I've told them I'm busy. I've got a staff retreat this week, but I just thought that that was exciting, I should tell you, but I'm, it turns out I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're still with me. So the breakdown today is, what do we believe? What we do has a huge impact on why we do it. Has a, I'm sorry, what we believe has a huge impact on what we do. So what is it that we believe and why do we do what we do? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. This is towards the end of a letter that Paul, who is an apostle, or one of the earliest guys who came to know Jesus, he was a Pharisee, Um, he came to know Jesus, and his life completely changed. What he did as a Pharisee was go find people who followed Jesus, and his, his job was to put them in prison or to oversee their execution. And now Paul has turned into the very thing that he hated and now is working for the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received on which, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believe in vain. For what I receive... I pass on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and and last of all, He appeared to me as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. So Paul kind of lays it out here. I mean, if you're ever saying, like, what is the gospel? He kind of lays it out in a real systematic way. He says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose on the third day. He appeared to people. So he appeared to the 12, to 500 others, and then finally to Paul, who had persecuted the church. And the ultimate of the gospel is that he has a testimony. He says, you know, I don't know why, but my life is completely changed. I don't know why God has his favor on me, but my my life is completely different than the way it used to be. So at the core of our beliefs, we believe in something called the gospel, which is good news. The core job of the church is to repeat this message, is to give this message out to other people, to build leadership, um, to teach others, to build others up so that they may teach this message. So as we dive into this today, I want, to think about, um, I want us to think about a word that has done a little bit of damage to Christianity. Most of us would agree that we're religious people, but the word religion doesn't quite capture what it is we do. The word religion is defined as a set of rituals that get somebody else closer to God. A set of rituals that brings about forgiveness, things that you have to do so that God might be happy with you. And I believe that what we just read in 1 Corinthians 15 absolutely kills that type of religion and that type of thinking. And I think that as a people, we need to form our thinking around gospel-type thinking. And let me give an example of this. Who did Jesus come, when Jesus came and, and saved people, who did he critique the most? Religious people. I mean, these are pillars of faith back in their time. And here's a few things that he said. Matthew uh, chapter 23, I want to give an example of what he uh, talked about as their type of religion. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they do, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What he's referring to are these religious people that made up these laws that helped them stay pure that were actually more burdensome than the, than the law itself. They were telling people, you need to live this way, you need to speak this way. On a, on a Sabbath day, you, you can't do this, this, or this. You can do this, you can't do this, you can't interact with this person. And so what he's saying is, your religious laws, in order to stay religious in your system to get you closer to God, is a burden. It's not really real religion. Matthew 23, 13 through 15 says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. 
You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law, and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Ouch. Right? I mean, the Savior of the world comes, and you're, you're like, oh, I wonder what he's going to say to me. And it's like, yeah, the converts that you made are terrible people, and it's your fault. You know, that, that's rough. What he's saying is the religious system that you have built, this religion that you claim, is turning people into damaging forces for, for God. The Pharisees took the law, which God meant for the Israelites to have freedom. He, he took the law which God gave for the Israelites so that they might have a greater connection with him. And, and they took it and they twisted it in a way that made God hard to follow. Religion is the effort we make to appease a holy God. There's only one problem with that. That that's not at all what Jesus did. We make the effort, uh, this is what religion says, you make the effort, you go to church, you do this, you do that, so that God will forgive you. But that's not at all what happened. Flip with me to John 1.14 or look up on the screen or however it is you're following along this morning. John 1.14 is the verse of our church and it's got incredible significance. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So if religion is the effort that we make to get close to God, what do we call that? The effort that Jesus made to step through time and space, to put on human skin, and to come and dwell with us. The gospel is kind of the opposite of a human effort. It's a God effort to connect with humanity. It's not a human effort to connect with God. It's a God effort to connect with humanity. It's the ultimate reversal of what we would classically define as religion. God is a holy God. The gospel is about connecting us with perfection. About in our imperfection, how do we connect with perfection? And, and so there's things that we typically do that are considered religious to cleanse ourselves or, or things like that. But God simply says, no, I'm sending you my son to, to, so that you can be clean. The reversal here is that God doesn't say, stay static somewhere. He doesn't say, like, I'm going to go live in the temple. You come to me. He says, I'm going to put flesh on and I'm going to come dwell with you. He loves us so much that he's broke through time in space to send us his son. Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue line, along this uh, line of thinking. Romans chapter 8 verses uh, 1 through 3b uh, actually says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through G Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful man to be a sin offering. So because we have junk and messed up stuff in our life simply called sin, because we have stuff that we do and because God is a perfect God, holy, completely clean, 
we have a hard time approaching that completely clean God. I think of the verse in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah goes before God. He has this vision. He goes before God and he says, Oh God, I am unclean. I cannot be in the presence of you. And he just realizes that in the, in the, the presence of perfection, how imperfect he is as a human. But the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus was the sin offering. It used to be where there was a bull, a, bull, a goat, a grain, a dove, a whatever that you brought as a sin offering. To, 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 uh, it was temporary and it cleansed your sins and you brought that to the temple and things like that. But God realized that only human blood would do. That only human blood would atone us for what happened, for, for what we've done, for the sin that we have. What this verse is saying is that because of Jesus' death on the cross, there's literally nothing that we can do. We can't earn salvation. We can't, you know, bring tons of gifts to God and automatically get salvation. We can't just look like a Christian with our lives. It's got to come from a changed heart, and it's what God did for us on the cross, not what we have done for him. We don't need to light candles, burn incense, bring a gift, sacrifice a dove, wear certain clothes, say certain things. For all those of you who have like doves in your pocket and you're like, oh man, today was going to be the day. There is nothing that we have to do we have atonement from sin because of God's grace. In other words, God has made us clean. God wants to make us clean from our sins. He's here. He's, 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 he came already. He's on, he's on the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again so that we can be clean, so that we can have atonement. There's nothing, those secret words that we have to say. There's not a secret handshake. There's nothing like that. It is simply that Jesus already did the work on the cross it's our job to believe or not to believe. Jesus kind of came as a rebellion to the religion that he started. Kids, right? You know. It, the, the religion that he started was twisted so much by man. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a, a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The perfection of a holy God, walking the earth in the midst of sin, died so that we can have life again. Verse 19 through 21 says this, The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, also grace might reign through righteousness and bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's simply what that means. Where there was a little bit of sin, there was a ton of grace. Where sin was, grace abounded. Where sin increased, grace overcame it. The grace of Jesus Christ overcame all of it. What's unique about the gospel versus every other religion, where religion says, when your sin increases, therefore the size of your gift must increase. And Jesus said, says, where your sin increases, so does the size of my gift. So does it in the, in the understanding and realization of what it is, 
I've done for you. The gospel is almost the antithesis of this type of religion of of where you need to do things to appease God. You need to do things to make sure the wrath of God doesn't come down on you. That's kind of crazy talk because the gospel tells us that Jesus actually satisfied the wrath of God. The religion of the Pharisees said, you need to follow this strict law down to the letter. You need to dress certain ways. You need to have specific gifts. And, and Jesus simply came to say, I love you and I'm willing to give my whole self for you. So forgiveness is freely given. Redemption, cleanliness. Not just like a bath or a shower or something like that, but inner soul cleanliness, like the guilt-ridden things that we've done in the past, the stuff that we're not proud of. God redeems that and gives us victory over that. God actually changes the way that we think and live. As we begin to read the gospel, it talks about things like renewing our hearts and renewing our mind. God actually wants to recreate us in our humanity right here on earth. So that we're people who bring heaven into situations, not hell like these Pharisees that we talked about. The reality of the gospel is that Jesus paid it all. All of our iniquities, all of our sin, all of that stuff, he paid for it. In the past, people paid for it by actually paying money for it. Um, there was even a time in the dark ages in, 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 in history um, where, uh, or I'm sorry, the Middle Ages, where, where there was things like, um, why can't I think of it? Earl, indulgences, thank you. I just, you know, when I can't think of something, I just Earl and indulgences. Yeah, some people have Wikipedia, I have Earl. <laughs> indulgences, the, the, the phrase was, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Or you could pay this bit of money, which actually went to a building fund, by the way, um, St. Peter's Basilica. But you could pay a little bit of money and actually get redeemed from your sins right there. How convenient is that? I mean, if that was the way it really was, we wouldn't have a church building. We'd just have like a little booth, you know, and we'd be like, have a credit card swipe machine. You could pay online. There'd be all, all different ways to pay. But that's not what this is all about. That is what religion has been twisted into. But what Jesus says here is there's really nothing that you can do. I, he came to suffer for us. And we tend to think that he, when we say Jesus is suffering, that it meant that he was nailed to a cross. And yeah, that hurts really bad. But that's not the suffering that's talked about in the Bible. It does hurt. I, I imagine. I've never been nailed to a cross. But I imagine it was hurt. 400 years before Jesus was born, he was prophesied. By um, his birth was prophesied by, by Isaiah. His death is when 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 in First Corinthians fifteen he says he was um, born according to the scriptures. He died and he rose again according to the scriptures. Um, this is what we're talking about. Isaiah chapter fifty three and all, really all through the Old Testament. There's tons of stuff. Isaiah fifty three speaks of Jesus and it says, "Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken." By God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So we tend to think that 
the, the spear in his side and, and the holes in his hands and the nails in his feet, we tend to think that that was the real big pain moment. But the pain moment for Jesus is when he took on, literally all the sins of the world were transferred onto him. And that is a load to bear. In 2005, this church sent me to go to uh, New Orleans to Hurricane Katrina victims. And as soon as I got there, they said, what is it you do for a living? Um, And I said, well, I'm a youth pastor because I was a youth pastor at the time. And they said, great, we just want you talking to people. You have no idea how much hurting is, is in these people. And I said, okay, all right, that's fine. And so our shelter had 406 people in it. And I walked through and systematically began to talk to each and every single one of them and began to pray with them and, and things like that. About two or three days later, I, I think I may, maybe made it through once um, because you're doing this for like eight, ten hours a day. And I was driving to the local Walmart to pick something up for supplies because our shelter was constantly out. And I just began to weep. and I broke down. I didn't know what was happening. I thought that I was possibly becoming mentally ill or something like that. I had no, I, I just never really cried before like that. And I went and I, I spoke with a mental health worker who were there for the patients. And I thought they were there for, you know, not necessarily for me, but they were there for the patients. And I said, hey, something's really wrong with me. I just went and sat in my car and cried. And she was like, okay, good. That is what you should be doing. You just took on the stories of 400 people who all have sin and sorrow and brokenness, and you took that all on. And I just began to imagine in that moment, there was times where I couldn't even help myself hearing these different stories of family members dying and lost and things like that. There was times I couldn't even help it, but I'd break down and just weep. And I began to imagine how much more to take on the sins of the world. It's incredible. Jesus took on the sins of each one of us so that we can stand before God totally clean and pure. It's interesting. Um, There's this thread of teaching. This is on my mind because we're going to talk about this at our staff retreat during some of our Bible study times. There's this thread of teaching in the Old Testament where when people realize they're in sin, they stand and tear their clothes open and they pour dust on their head or ashes on their head and they wear sackcloth. And the interesting part about that is they repent of their sin and they stand there naked before God and just say, oh God, forgive me. I find that totally amazing that the kings and queens, not necessarily queens, but kings and, and very prominent people would stand there and rip their clothes open in front of God and say, God, I have sinned. Please forgive me. So Jesus took on our sin. So now that we, we, we understand that, we read this verse, surely he took on our infirmities and carried up our sorrows. We were considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He wasn't just pierced, the nail didn't just go through his hand just to kill him, but actually as the nails were going into his hand, the sins of the world we're coming upon him. The stuff that we do, the stuff that we think that we're not proud of, the stuff that we say that we didn't mean to say, all went on Christ. And there's this little thread of teaching in the New Testament that says, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, for, um, forgiveness, a clean slate, all that stuff comes through Jesus. Hope and restoration comes through Jesus. Jesus. 
coming to church is not about a clever way to manage your sins. It's not. I mean, we're not in the business of sin management. Um, so if you come to us and are like, oh, pastor, this is how, what I'm doing. I, I have a problem. Then I, I'd probably just say, stop it. Um, no, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Has anybody seen that Bob Newhart sketch? Anyways, I'm a 29-year-old in a 40-year-old's mind. Um, coming to church is not about a clever way to manage our sins. It's about laying them at the foot of the cross, about the one who, whose hands and feet were pierced for our transgressions. When it comes down to it, we're all human, and, and, and I think that sometimes just the average person walking about in this world thinks that, hey, if I do a good deed for the day, I mean, that's kind of what I was taught when I grew up, do a good deed for the day, it sort of cancels out all the bad things you do, right? Anybody else taught that? I was. So you do a good deed for the day, and, and life is good. Or, you know, we believe that if we're just moral or good people, that, then we're set. But the reality of it is that there's nothing that we can do. There's no amount of good deeds that we could do. There's no amount of, of being nice to people that we can do. It all goes on the blood of Jesus. At the heart of it, religion is all about trying to prove that you are worthy of being loved. And at the heart of the gospel, the gospel says you don't have to prove a thing. You don't need to prove that you're worthy of love. Jesus Christ already proved that for you as he was up there dying on the cross. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus came and mended the gap between man and God. He took up the sins of a world in order that we might approach God who is holy and perfect. And that he rose on the third day. Like I said before, this thread of teaching, Romans 5, 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. And then it goes on to say, life comes through one man, through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who have fallen asleep. For some, or for since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus came to reverse the curse of Adam, the curse of sin, the curse of this human nature that we could actually be reborn and recreated in the image of God. Right now, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're five years old, it doesn't matter if you're 99 years old, you could actually be reborn and recreated in the image of God right here, right now, right where you sit. Jesus' resurrection defeated sin and defeated death. It gives us the ability to, to have Jesus live in us. It gives us the ability to live transformed lives. It gives the, the ability to say things like, before I met Jesus, I was this way, and now I'm in a different way. Like Paul, in, in the gospel, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, when he says, I want to remind you about the gospel, the very last thing he says is that, and I was somebody who persecuted the church. And I was somebody who did this to these people. And I was somebody who is not even totally close to being worthy of what I've received. And yet, Jesus died 
for me. Jesus died in our place. The New Testament Greek simply says, if we were to translate it literally, it simply says, in our stead. When it says Jesus died for you, if we were to, if we were to translate that literally, it, it simply says, in our stead. So in our place, Jesus died. The gospel is simple. The good news is that Jesus died in our place and that we could have real life. And the Bible is pretty clear about what it is, like how do we get it? I mean, if religion is man's effort to get to God and and, and God actually changed all that by coming to us, then how do we get that? Romans 10.9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in me will never be put to shame. Simply what we need to do, you don't need to go anywhere, you don't need to, to, to pray a certain prayer, you simply need to say, God, I submit myself to you. Maybe if you just simply want to say, I believe, that's a way of doing it too. There, but there's no like hocus pocus or anything you have to do to start following God. You simply just need to, to submit your life. Some people say it in terms like bowing your heart or, or saying, God, I recognize what I do on my own is not good enough, but what you can do through me is. God, I recognize the sacrifice that you have on the cross is far greater than anything I could ever bring to you. We tend to want to do this on our own. We tend to want to make it right or bring things to God or something like that. But Jesus simply said, hey, I came to you. I came to you so that you might have life and so that we might be reconnected in a powerful way. The gospel is that Jesus loves you in a huge way. The gospel is that Jesus did this ultimate reversal of what religion says to do. The gospel is that Jesus laid down his life so that we can be clean. The gospel is that Jesus took up his life again so that we might be able to live through him. When Jesus took up his life again, he sent something called the Holy Spirit. And it literally means like God dwelling within us. There, there's this word incarnation that goes along with it that, 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 um, that, that literally means that God's Spirit dwells with, within us. The gospel is, um, when I met Jesus, I was a completely different person. I completely changed. It's really about freedom. There's this verse in 2 Corinthians that says, where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. It's really, the bondage of religion is that you need to bring things to God, that you need to appease the wrath of a God, that you need to say or do certain things, that God's always watching over your back like Santa Claus, and if you don't do do things right, then he's not going to give you good things. That's religion that brings death. But a religion that brings life is that Jesus came, died on the cross completely for us. There's nothing that we could do to change that. There's nothing that we could do to make amends on our own. But that God did it for us. So it's really about freedom. If you're here today and, the, and you want to be uh, set free, the Bible sim- is clear. It simply says, anyone who trusts in me will never be put to shame. Think about the things that we put our trust in. I mean, just look at your, your, your checking statement um, and, and say, okay, what do I put my trust in? Where do I put my finances in? 
You know, what are some things that we put our trust in? But Jesus says, if you put your trust in me, you will never be put to shame. And that's the promise that we cling to. This is what we believe. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, then you'll be saved. Maybe you're here today and you simply want to say, I believe. I want to invite you to do that as we sing this next song out loud so there's no mistake that you, you know, okay, I believe. And there's nothing more that you have to do. I believe that he paid the price for me. I believe that he paid it all. I believe that he took my junk, my sin, and he crucified it on the cross. That's what I believe. So maybe you're here today and you're just an average Joe and you're just like, well, who cares? I do good things. Our good is never good enough. But we need to borrow that good from what Jesus did and live through him. Let's pray. God, I simply want to say right now, I believe. I believe that you're the Alpha, the Omega, the creator of the universe, the one who created humanity, who created the oceans, who created the world. God, that you came to set us free. Lord, I believe that there's some folks here today who simply need to place their trust in you. As the Bible says, those who place their trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. God, and as we do this today, have this recognition that for thousands and thousands of years, this is how people have been coming to a new realization of you, through the proclamation of your word. So Lord, right now, if there's people here who just simply need to confess, I believe. Lord, I pray that you would lay that on their hearts. Father, that people here today, that we would lay our sin at the foot of your cross. Lord, because you've paid it all. In the name of Jesus, amen.